Welcome to Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and based on their award-winning blog series. Support for this project is presented to the Barnum Museum from the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, Peoples United, a division of M&T Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. The Barnum Museum has a special treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to high society and royalty, as well as millions of ordinary people. Barnum's lively letters to friends, family members, and business associates reveal him more completely as a person at times struggling mightily to make the three-year tour a success, all the while directing the management of his American museum from afar. They also offer insights into Barnum as a husband, father, and nephew, and as a mentor to the child actor-entertainer whose popularity resulted in their meteoric rise to fame and fortune. In his mid-30s at the time, Barnum proved himself a tireless go-getter, calculating risk-taker and astute entrepreneur decades before his name was attracting crowds to the greatest show on earth. These letters offer a window into the hardscrabble era of show business, revealing how Barnum went about acquiring, hiring, and commissioning attractions, and promoting his museum and the general Tom Thumb tour in Europe. Join us as we travel back in time to learn through Barnum's own words about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum. A bit of France in Bridgeport, Connecticut. One of the fascinating artifacts the Barnum Museum has in its collection is a 750-page volume of letters compiled while P.T. Barnum was on tour with child actor prodigy General Tom Thumb in France and the United Kingdom in the mid-1840s. Charles Stratton was the boy's real name, and at the time he set sail for Liverpool, England in January of 1844, he had just turned six and would not return home to America for another three years. Notably, Barnum billed Charles as five years older than he was to make his diminutive stature seem all the more remarkable. Barnum himself was a young man in his mid-thirties and only just beginning to make his name and fortune. This letter copybook is a treasure, in large part because it documents the early years of Barnum's and General Tom Thumb's careers, but until recently it wasn't accessible for research. Even Adrian St. Pierre, the Barnum Museum's curator, had not been able to go through it until it was digitized, and she could find time to focus on reading the letters a few at a time. The copybook contains many letters, 
including about 30 written to the editors of the New York Atlas newspaper to be published as a travelogue series in their Sunday paper. They are full of descriptions and opinions about the scenery, the cuisine, the cleanliness of hotels, or lack thereof, French art and history, the manners and traditional dress of country people, the ways that towns were laid out and built, and whatever else caught Barnum's attention. Seeing Bridgeport spring to life in April of 2020 with golden swaths of daffodils in bloom and tulips soon to follow, Adrian was struck by the realization that Barnum's travels in France had influenced his vision for his beloved Bridgeport. This was clearly revealed by what he chose to tell the Atlas readers. Barnum adopted Bridgeport, Connecticut as his hometown in 1847, and after that, until he died in 1891, he had a great deal to do with its development, even serving as mayor for a term. His vision was broad. He hoped not just to bring manufacturing to the young city, but also to ensure that its citizens had clean water, a hospital, access to education and culture, and attractive, inviting outdoor spaces, parks, where residents could enjoy leisure time and recreate. In fact, Bridgeport's moniker is the Park City. This part seems especially relevant today, when so many people are heading to parks and nature preserves to escape the four walls that became a bit too familiar during the pandemic shutdown. The outdoors, especially in the spring, is a salve for the soul and offers healthful air and spirit-boosting sunshine. Barnum thought the same in what he wrote about the town of Orléans and other towns in France in 1845. Promenades are formed around the town upon the line of the former ramparts. Indeed, in every town in France, however small, there are public walks, shaded with trees, and forming the most delightful promenades. Stone benches usually line the walks at intervals, and every attention seems to be shown to the health and enjoyment of the people, a feature worthy of imitation in the towns of America. Some distinguished individuals have said that Regents and Hyde Park are the lungs of London. In building and improving our towns and cities in America, the lungs should never be forgotten. They may be the means of annihilating disease and producing worlds of happiness. There are many institutions and peculiarities in France which are not only highly commendable, but are worthy of imitation in America whose duty it should be to imitate all the good and reject all the bad of the world. The abattoir, or slaughterhouse, always in the outskirts. The public cemeteries always removed beyond the walls. The public museums of natural history and paintings, found in every large town, and the public libraries and reading rooms, arranged in convenient apartments with salaried librarians, common in all French provincial towns. These are examples worthy of imitation by the most delightful, free, and happy country on the face of the globe, the United States of America. While we can't know precisely what P.T. Barnum would have said in the face of our global crisis, we do know he cared about developing a city that supported people's health and well-being. Parks are one of Barnum's legacies to Bridgeport. And we hope you live somewhere that also offers soul-restoring places to explore and enjoy. The copybook begins with a partial letter, and of course, that tells us there was another copybook that preceded the one we have. Most likely, it no longer exists. 
That partial letter and the two following are numbers 68, 69, and 70 of a 100-part series Barnum wrote for the New York Atlas. We will focus on Barnum's correspondence to individuals, and not letters written for a public audience. Still, there is useful introductory information in letter number 69, describing his self-appointed role as an advance man for General Tom Thumb, or as he noted in French, the avant-courrier. As he explained the responsibilities to Atlas readers, the usual duties of an avant-courrier to an exhibition include, among the most prominent, that of raising an excitement by puffing the things to be exhibited, and thus create with the public an appetite for seeing it. My duties are quite the reverse. My first business is to engage the largest theater or saloon to be found in each town, then get out a simple placard announcing that the general will appear on such a day, after which all my energies are devoted to keeping the public quiet and begging them not to get excited, for we will endeavor to give them all a chance to see him. Of course, provided they down with the dust. But his efforts repeatedly met with failure, as he tells readers, and he was becoming resigned to that fact and the ensuing complications. There's no use in talking. They will get excited, and will keep talking about the marvelous little general who has delighted the principal monarchs of Europe and more than a million of their subjects. And so they will keep talking about the general and his magnificent presence and his miniature equipage, in spite of all I can do to prevent it. The consequence is that when the general arrives, we have a great deal of trouble in taking the money and finding places for all the people to get a look at him. But a man can stand almost anything when he gets used to it. So we bear our troubles with the calmness and fortitude of philosophers and Christians. General Tom Thumb had been wildly successful in Paris, performing a play called Le Petit Poussé, and perhaps Barnum expected similar receptions from the people in French provincial towns. That was not always the case. Despite the smug tone of Barnum's letter, he often had to work hard to stir up excitement, and the French language and unfamiliar customs continually challenged him. The letters in the copybook begin after the Paris and Brussels venues. At that point, Barnum was undoubtedly still feeling elated by their great success with the big city audiences, but also starting to feel lonely and homesick. The difficulties of constant travel, managing business in another language, and adapting to peculiar laws and taxes would soon begin to wear on him. His wife, Charity, and their two daughters returned to Bridgeport, and he, now in the role of advance man, was separated from the entourage. The first personal correspondence in the copybook is a letter to Sherwood Stratton, the father of General Tom Thumb. It was written on August 6, 1845, while Barnum was in Angers, a town 186 miles, 299 kilometers, southwest of Paris. Piling up the tin, Barnum and Tom Thumb seek their fortune in France. As we begin to delve into this trove of correspondence by P.T. Barnum, a group of three short letters is immediately riveting because of the interesting details about making arrangements for touring young Charles Stratton, a little person and actor better known by his stage name General Tom Thumb. To my dear friend Brewster, Barnum wrote that he was continually a few days in advance of the company, making arrangements and stirring up the excitement, 
Meanwhile, he had written to Charles' father, Sherwood Stratton, with terse instructions for the subsequent arrangements. Though Barnum was quite fond of the boy and lovingly referred to him as the general, he was not keen on the parents, particularly the father, with whom he had partnered on this business venture and had cause to regret the decision. In the letter, Barnum informs Stratton that his son was to perform twice each day at the theater in Angers, France, at 2 and 7 o'clock, and that he should look out for a letter with explicit instructions, which would be at the hotel there. Barnum advised him how to exchange his silver for French banknotes, and told him of the arrangements made to rent a piano for their three-day stop. Writing in haste, Barnum added that he would be traveling all night from Angers in a diligence, the French version of a stagecoach, to reach Tours the next day. Barnum would then make the arrangements for Tom Thumb's next venue. While in Tours, Barnum took up his pen to write to friends Brewster and Risley, letting them know of the runaway success of General Tom Pousse, Pousse is French for Thumb, during their previous three and a half months in Paris. Barnum wrote, The general has nearly killed the people in this part of the country. He has hit them so hard. Risley himself had reaped his financial success in America, as Barnum congratulated him on piling up the tin a delightful expression to describe new wealth. Meanwhile, Barnum and the Strattons were happily raking in their fortune on the European tour, and Barnum boasted of their success to Risley. General Tom Thumb has not done hitting them yet, but we have all got as much money as we want and shall go home next summer. I told you in London I would quit when I had made $50,000. In a couple of months more, it will reach over $100,000, and I am not quite satisfied yet, but am almost. This period in the mid-1840s marks the early years of Barnum's meteoric rise to fame and fortune, which began in 1842 with his acquisition of Scudder's American Museum in New York City, and took off in 1844 with a three-year tour of the United Kingdom, Belgium, France, and Spain. On that tour, a very young General Tom Thumb is introduced to royalty, heads of state, and members of the aristocracy, as well as thousands of ordinary people. Barnum declared millions had seen his man in miniature by the end of the tour, but it is undoubtedly possible his number was inflated. That said, success was never a sure bet, and Barnum worked himself to the point of illness at times, so determined was he that the tour should be profitable. But it was the feeling of success he craved more than great riches. Riches were a fine and welcome reward for hard work and achievement. Soon enough, in 1850 and 1851, Barnum would gamble on success again and make an immense fortune with the Jenny Lind concert tour in North America. All of this went far beyond a mere piling up of tin, an expression he used several times in his letters. By the end of P.T. Barnum's life, the $100,000 he hoped to earn on this first European tour would seem a modest sum and represent just a fraction of his wealth when he passed on in 1891. He was worth approximately $12 million. The General's Clothes and Carriage Stir Up Excitement The letters in P.T. Barnum's copybook offer such a rich assortment of intriguing details that it's hard to know what to highlight in a podcast. He used the word scribblings to describe his correspondence with the New York Atlas newspaper editors, 
to whom he provided descriptions of his travels. Since recorded audio didn't exist in Barnum's day, maybe he would have referred to this as scribblings. But in this series, we will focus mainly on epistles to friends, family, and business associates, also on some of the people in the general Tom Thumb entourage, such as the boy's parents, Charles and Cynthia Stratton, Tom Thumb's preceptor, H.G. Sherman, who was also an antiquarian seeking artifacts during their travels, and the group's French translator, Professor Pint. Some snippets are drawn from letters written between August 9th and 12th, 1845, illuminating how Barnum arranged and promoted his protégé's performances. These were written when Barnum was in the towns of Poitiers, Niort, and La Rochelle, France. One of the story threads that caught my attention concerned the use of Tom Thumb's clothing in the advanced promotion of his performances. While Barnum was in Poitiers, he wrote to his tour manager, If you can possibly spare any more boots or shoes of the generals, send them with the other things to Bordeaux, Napoleon boots or any other. Humorous impersonations of Napoleon Bonaparte were among Tom Thumb's most popular character portrayals. For that, he wore a gray-green and white military-style jacket and tall boots that flared at the knees. Barnum's letters to the tour manager often contained firm instructions to collect the items from places where Barnum had loaned them while engaged in his work like the advance man for the entourage. I have left one boot with the theater manager, he wrote. Don't forget it. Lending boots and clothing had two purposes. Some items were provided to engravers to produce accurate woodcuts for printing illustrations. The printing blocks were referred to as cuts. Printers used woodcut illustrations to enliven handbills, posters, and newspaper advertisements. Barnum paid engravers to make the printing blocks he wanted, then brought them to the printer or printers doing work for him in each town. He had to remember to get the printing blocks back or have them forwarded, which could be a challenge since often he was only in a town for a couple of days and nights to book a performance venue for the general. Among the most popular woodcut images were those showing the general's miniature coach and ponies. This became a kind of trademark. Barnum also seems to have loaned articles of dress for display, with the idea that first-hand viewing of one of the perfectly miniature garments would stir up public excitement. I have left a coat of the general's with the hairdresser, close to the theater, in a first-rate place. Don't forget it. Whether this coat was one of the character costumes or a tiny version of gentleman's clothing, which Barnum refers to as Charles' citizen's dress, isn't revealed. The next group of extracts gives us some tantalizing bits about staging Tom Thumb's performances and the role of the miniature equipage, the term for his carriage, liveried servants, and ponies. Barnum wrote to his manager, The general appears at night as Grand Frederick, the carriage enters and takes him off the stage. The carriage does not enter the theater in the daytime. In the daytime, he gives the statues in his citizen's dress, at night in costume. Statues refer to poses in which Charles presented himself emulating classical sculptures. Frankly, it is hard to envision him doing that in a suit, and photos from later dates show he wore something like a white body stocking for these poses. In another letter, Barnum gives specific instructions about the entourage's arrival in the town of Niort. The groom must leave Poitiers at 5 o'clock, and you leave at half-past 6 or certainly by 7. 
The groom was charged with bringing Tom Thumb's miniature coach and ponies, the equipage that had become an essential marketing tool since their tour through the UK. Yet Barnum's enthusiasm for success at Nyor, which he expressed high hopes in a previous letter, seems to have been quelled within a day or two of his arrival. You will not do much here, I fear. It is a large town, but very dull. Still, you must try. If the groom gets the equipage in the streets by 11 o'clock, he may stir them up some. You don't play Le Petit Poussé, a play written for Tom Thumb, after you leave Tours, but the general imitates Frederick the Great here in the evening. Tom Thumb's imitation of Napoleon had been very well received in England. Still, it was thought prudent to forego imitating the French hero while on tour in France because of the restoration of the monarchy. However, curiosity got the better of King Louis-Philippe, and he asked to see the Napoleon portrayal. But for everyone else, General Tom Thumb would mimic a different military hero, Frederick the Great. The costume for this character role may be what Barnum was referring to when he directed a correspondent to go as soon as possible to Messieurs Rue and Company theatrical agents, to have them send signed contracts, and he asked that Mr. Rue will also please send his bill for the general's new clothes, and I will attend to it at once. Here at the Barnum Museum, we have a fantastic array of clothing that initially belonged to the general and was saved over the years. Among these items are a Napoleon jacket made of sage green wool accented with off-white and scarlet, a brown silk velvet court suit, a black wool gentleman's suit, a navy and scarlet military jacket, plus footwear, jewelry, and more. A single epaulet and a Napoleon-style hat and boot are among these treasures, and all can be seen in the Connecticut Digital Archive. The Barnum Museum also has one of Tom Thumb's show carriages. There were a number made, and perhaps most famous was a blue one presented to him by Queen Victoria, along with four small yet sturdy Shetland ponies. We believe our coach dates to about 1850, a few years after the European tour. It's fair to say that museum visitors today are just as fascinated by seeing this miniature coach as people seem to have been in the 1800s. Fortunately, now you can see it no matter where you are in the world by visiting our digital collection. Negotiating Tactics The General's Expenses Are Very Great P.T. Barnum's extraordinary, enduring legacy overshadows the years of backbreaking work before his fame and that of his protege Tom Thumb was widespread. Success was sometimes hard won and certainly not guaranteed, as Barnum would discover after leaving the adoring crowds in Paris to tour the general in the provincial towns. Barnum's correspondence from the summer of 1845 reveals that stirring up the excitement was an arduous process in places where people were not yet acquainted with the irresistible charms of man-in-miniature Charles Stratton. Working as the advance man on the tour, Barnum's talents as a never-quit bargainer were often called into play to make the arrangements, which involved convincing mayors, theater managers, and the like in permitting him to engage a hall or theater for two to three days of performances, agreeing on a percentage of the take, and arranging for lodging and board for the entourage. A particularly trying episode occurred in the town of Bordeaux in mid-August. More often than not, 
The sticking point in settling on the fees concerned a poor tax levied on luxuries such as concerts and theater performances, as these could take a hefty chunk from the profits Barnum anticipated. A frequent complaint in Barnum's letters was the amount of money he was required to pay the hospice people at each town where Tom Thumb performed. Each town had its own Commission du Hospice Civil, responsible for raising money to offset the town's cost of caring for the institutionalized poor. These commissions had the authority to negotiate the tax rate on a case-by-case basis if they chose. While not opposed to the principle of the tax, Barnum was exasperated by the rates he felt were exorbitant, and this came to a head in Bordeaux when Léon Bazou, the director of the hospice board, refused to budge. An infuriated Barnum penned off a letter to Bazou that, luckily for us, tells us more about Charles Stratton's career and also details his expenses. Barnum threatened to pull the plug on performances in Bordeaux, citing hospice fees he claimed would cause Charles to lose money. Barnum argued, He comes a great distance with his family in order to gain an honest livelihood. He has already paid about 7,000 francs for the benefit of hospice in France, and he is willing to pay all that he can afford for the benefit of the poor. But when your demands are so exorbitant as to overreach his profits, you not only deprive him of the ability of performing at all, but you at the same time deprive the hospice from receiving any assistance from him. Barnum cited other towns agreeing to 5, 7, 10, 20, or 50 francs per day, or a rate of one-tenth of the receipts, in contrast to Bordeaux's demand for one-fifth to one-quarter of the receipts. He expected to bring in as much as 800 francs in that city. Thus, at least 160 francs would go to hospice, and another 15% of his take would go to the theater. He countered, I very much regret that your demands are such as to render it impossible for General Tom Pousse to visit Bordeaux. Barnum was always careful to frame his negotiations as if he was Charles' agent, not the showman in charge. In a letter to friend Ouet, dated August 18, 1845, he confides, I continue to be merely the simple agent of General Tom Pousse, and find that by that plan I save considerable expense. Using that tactic, Barnum explains in his letter to Bezu, The general's expenses are very great. He is obliged to travel with these voitures, vehicles, a poste, one post chaise with four horses, a fourgon, a long covered wagon made to carry goods and supplies or baggage, with three horses to carry his four ponies and little carriage, and another fourgon to carry the baggage and the accessories to his performances. He is also obliged to pay large salaries to his interpreter, preceptor, teacher, musicians, and others in his employ, so that his daily expenses average 400 to 500 francs. Barnum bolstered his case by explaining that the general is not exhibited simply as a natural curiosity, for as a natural curiosity alone, he would not receive 100 francs per day. But the chief attractions of his exhibitions are his performances, which consist of the poses académiques, as well as dancing, singing, imitations of celebrated characters such as Grand Frederick and Company. His exhibitions, you will therefore perceive, partake of the dramatic, and he is not therefore to be considered the same as a natural curiosity, which by law gives the hospital the right to demand a quarter of the receipts. The general is an actor and a member of the Association du Artiste Dramatique, as you will see by the book which accompanies this letter.
Of course, Barnum was determined that the general would perform in Bordeaux. He was sure to gain widespread acclaim there, and it was hoped the receipts would make up for losses in some small towns. He therefore asked Bazou to reconsider the tax rate, and offered that if the fees he, Barnum, reported having paid to other towns were found to be false, he would pay one quarter of the whole receipts in Bordeaux. Things had been more accessible in Paris and England, for Barnum concludes, If you are willing to do this, then I shall be most happy to make arrangements for him to visit this city. But if you persist in demanding a sum which he is wholly unable to pay, then unfortunately his long and pointless journey from Paris to Poitiers must be thrown away, and he must return to Paris and England, where the laws will permit him to gain a livelihood without taking from him all that he can earn. Letters from Barnum to his associates on this subject continue over several days, each one describing his aggravation with the hospice board and the fact that he could not get things settled quickly. He informed Charles' father, Sherwood Stratton, As I expected, I have bloody bad work with the hospice here, but I don't give it up yet. I hope to get it, the rates, reduced. Further venting his frustration, he writes, There is plenty of money here, and we can raise the devil, but I don't want to work altogether for the hospice. So, who won the argument? Did the general get to perform in Bordeaux after all this trouble? Indeed, Barnum gives no indication he will give up or give in. Knowing his determined nature, I strongly suspect he will find a way to make a splash in Bordeaux. And for that story, stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune. This podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum. All episodes are based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by Adrian St. Pierre, curator of the Barnum Museum. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pinna, and narration by William Saris. Kathleen Marr is our executive director, and John Swing is our chief operations officer. Please visit our website at www.barnum-museum.org to learn more about the museum. Don't forget to connect with us on social media and visit the Barnum Museum's YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our fascinating collections and more stories about the legendary showman. Please tune in next time as we continue our adventures in Europe with P.T. Barnum.